product or process? <laughs> now that's a hot button topic. They say in polite company, never speak of politics or religion. You might need to add product versus process to the list. I mean, this topic is one way to spark controversy. If you post this online, it might even bring out the trolls. <laughs> a little LOL there for you. So what makes it so controversial? Let's find out. Now, with product versus process, sides are quickly drawn, partially because the topic brings with it some basic assumptions. Now, product people, those people on the product side, they'll say, first, it's the way they teach. So in effect, if someone says process, not product, then it's an insult to their teaching method. It's like saying you're wrong. And in fact, it can be their teaching method. I mean, many art teachers use product, AKA the project, to teach skills and technique and media. Product supporters also emphasize the importance of a well-created work of art. I mean, the product is why you make the art. Now, process people, they see it differently. They tend to believe that the student learns through the process. And they might even add that sometimes through the process, it's okay if the student fails. And although they do appreciate a well-created product, they're okay if one doesn't materialize as long as a student learns and grows through the process. Now, there's another side to this debate. There are some that say, why do we have to choose? Why, can, why do we have to choose one or the other? Why not both? And on the surface, this seems very practical. After all, some process is followed in the making of a product. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And likewise, product does usually result from a process-centered lesson. The question comes down to how much process and what type of product, and that needs to be considered before anyone can find that middle ground. Now, there are two sides, two ends, I should say, of the spectrum. To the far, one far side of the product-centered lesson is what some would call the cookie-cutter lesson. Now, this term has become a point of contention in and of itself. And to some degree, it's because it's sometimes used to define all project-based lessons. And that's just not the case. And here, I'm not condoning or condemning. I'm just describing what I believe most people are referring to when they say a cookie-cutter project. So I guess this is my definition. It's a lesson with a preconceived outcome that is so well-defined that it produces a class set of projects that are virtually identical. Now, defenders of the cookie-cutter project, they, although they would be insulted to hear it labeled that, um, they would admit that their students' work may look similar. However, there are several key factors um, that the lesson contain, which is why they believe it's important. First, a cookie-cutter lesson sets a clear objective. It's clearly defined. Also, the lessons usually teach a new medium or a new skill or a new technique. And the success of these lessons can clearly be measured using a rubric and the outcome produces a quality product. And they may also point out that these key factors would be missing in an open-ended art environment. And they may be right because on the other side of the spectrum is the open-ended art assignment. Now here, there are no projects. Instead, students are encouraged to select a topic, to select the media, and create whatever they like without instruction, without curriculum, or expectations. <laughs> and if there's a stigma placed on the product-focused teacher that the lessons are cookie-cutter, the same thing applies to the process-focused teacher where her lessons are completely opened and without instruction. Now, as a self-labeled choice-based tab teacher, I'll pick no bones about it, I'm pro-process. However, I'm not pro-open-ended. 
I, not the way I just described it, at least. I, I think there's a great misconception that TAB teachers in general don't instruct, don't have expectations, don't have a curriculum, when in fact, TAB teachers do teach techniques. We do present media, we present our history, and we just do it all through the process. So let's discuss the process and explain what it is <laughs> and how these factors are introduced as part of the lesson. The art process actually has its roots set in both project management and des design process, really. Um, in a previous life, I was a project manager and I worked for Nortel Networks. And my job essentially was to walk my clients and the development team through the design process. Here's how it would work. A client would come to me with an idea for an app or website, whatever it was, and I would sit down with them and I would take down the specs. I'd ask them what they wanted us to build, how it might work. And next, I would take that vision and I would go back to my development team and I'd sit down with them. And I would say, let me know what's possible and what's not. And they would come up with a design. I go back to my client, I'd present the design, and once they were on board, I'd go back to the development team and we'd build it, whatever it was. After it was built, we'd roll it out, and then we'd talk about what worked, what didn't work, and we'd kind of consider plans for future development of the project. And that's what I did as a project manager for Nortel Networks. I'm really oversimplifying it, but in general, that was the process. And when you think about it, it was exactly the art process. Here it is. The client had an idea inspiration phase. We developed a plan, design phase. We built the app, creation phase. We rolled it out, presentation. We talked about what did worked and what didn't work, and that's your critique. And this same process is really what many tab teachers use today with their students. Um, I, I do it, and I'll give you just an example of it. Um, I'll present inspiration. Um, sometimes a student brings inspiration. They have this idea they want to build this thing, but most times, more than not, I'm presenting them with inspiration through a theme or a concept. For example, we do a unit titled Artist Steel, and it's all about how artists appropriate ideas, how they combine things from other artists and other artworks in life and create something original by combining other things. It's just a concept. So I'll present that concept as inspiration, and then I'll ask my students, how can you incorporate appropriation into your work? It's really wide open, but it still provides a starting point, and that's the inspiration phase. The second phase, of the process is the design phase. And this is where the planning happens. So one way the students can start planning is by creating thumbnails. And I'll show them how to create thumbnails. It's a great way to work out the composition. However, it's only one way, and it's only one way the students can you know, design what they want to design. Because some students need hands-on design time. They don't think on paper, they think out loud. And they need to pick up the material and start playing and start experimenting. That's how their mind works. So I think, I really believe that we need to be open to the different ways students design. Thumbnails is one way, you know, picking up materials and just working, experimenting is another. What works for one student might not work for another. So we need to let them design the way it works for them. And another important aspect of the design phase, this happens in this phase, is they make all the decisions right there for what's gonna happen about their art. Um, how the art will be created, um, what medium they'll use, what size is it gonna be, um, are there any techniques that they might use? And this is where the teacher can work with them, like if they were doing a drawing in perspective, you could say, do you, or buildings, excuse me, you could say, hey, do you, do you know about linear perspective? And they might be like, no, what are you talking about? And you can show them, and then they can make the decision, do they wanna use that technique or not use that technique? So that all happens in that design process. Once the design is complete, we enter the third phase, creation. And this phase is probably the most obvious. It's the time when the student makes the art. <laughs> That's easy, right? Okay, once the art is complete and the student says, it's done, then we move on to the last phase, reflection. 
Now, this phase also has several kind of sub-areas, if you will. Uh, first, ref reflection could come in the form of, um, they, there could be a formal critique, or the student might ask, might just self-reflect on the piece, or the teacher might ask him to self-reflect on it, or they might ask for a peer review or a peer critique, or they might ask for the teacher's thoughts, you know, what do you think? Um, so whatever the method, it's a time to consider what went well and what didn't go so well, basically so next time they can do it better. Uh, it's, this is also time to consider presentation. Like, was this work designed for maybe a contest? Or maybe there's an art exhibit coming up and that's why it was made. Or maybe they want to display it in the school showcase. Or maybe they're just gonna hang it on their fridge. But it's a time to think about that. Hey, you've got this piece of art, how do you want to present it to people? And that's the whole process in a nutshell. The only thing I might add is that it appears very linear, moving from phase one to phase two and so on. And it is linear, but it's not solely linear. I mean, you can jump around, you can move back and forth. You can reflect on the process during the creation phase, right? You can go back to and redesign something and change it before you finished it. So in general, it's linear going from phase one to phase two, phase three, but it's also uh, a circle because after phase four, you go back to phase one. Okay, so what were we talking about? Oh yes, back to the beginning. Process versus product. Now, the product teacher can say, all students go through process, and that's true. But this is not about the students going through the process. To me, it's more about how much of the process they have ownership of. To me, a choice-based tab teacher presents ownership, and ownership is key to the student, because student-directed means student ownership. I know it's confusing, but to explain what I mean, let me go back to the cookie cutter project and compare it to a choice-based project. Now again, this isn't to put down the product-focused teachers. There are benefits, as I discussed earlier, to teaching that way. This is more to point out what I see as the benefits of the process-focused method. Okay, first, let's examine the phase of a cookie cutter project. In the first phase, inspiration, the teacher decides the subject matter. So perhaps they found a really nice sunset painting they want to do with their students or a, a sunflower project. Whatever it is, it's something the teacher finds inspirational. And of course, she hopes her students will find it inspiration as well. So for the design phase, the teacher's got to put in a little bit more work here. The teacher starts putting together the scope of the project. The teacher's going to determine the materials. Uh, she's going to decide the size and the shape of the paper and how long the project's going to go, like what the schedule is going to be. Now, once those two phases are complete, the students are presented with the inspiration and the materials and are instructed the steps necessary to complete the project. Basically, the students begin the creation phase and they engage in making the art. Now, once the allotted time is over, um, and sometimes the teachers, if, they, if the students finish early, the teacher probably has a plan to deal with those who finished, but they enter the final phase, which is reflection. And here, all those same variety of critiques messages that I mentioned before uh, apply, depending on what the teacher wants to do there. However, the only one difference is there's often a rubric um, that, that compares a student's art to a set of, uh, I guess, tasks, if you will, that are on the rubric. Um, so you can decide, um, probably add a numerical, alphanumerical grade of value to, to the work, um, just to show how well the student did in the art making uh, process. Now, if we're being totally honest about this cookie cutter process, we could conclude two things. First, the teacher, not the student, is doing a lot of the process. They're completing a lot of the process. The teacher's determining the inspiration, the teacher's designing the project, and the teacher's establishing the reflection by putting together the rubric. So the only thing the student is really doing, as far as the process is concerned, is the creation phase of the project. The second takeaway 
is if we're really being honest, is the teachers doing a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> like, they're doing way more work than they should have to be. And that begs the question, like, why should the art teacher have to find the projects? Or why should the art teacher have to find the inspiration? Why should the art teacher need to do all the design work? All the work could be done by the students. And frankly, to me, it should be. But when it's the student's job, there are so many benefits. So let's compare those phases when it's a student-directed project. So even when presented with inspiration, like in the form of a theme or a concept, as in my example before, Art is Steel, the student still needs to take that concept and pull out what he or she finds inspirational about it. There is a benefit for the student to find a solution to a problem. It's problem solving. And that's the inspiration side of it. So yeah, you're presenting it, but they still have to formulate it. Next, when it's the student's job to design the project, like she has to make the decisions about what medium will be best to match the vision that she has for her project. And they have to decide how big or how small it's gonna be. They need to decide what techniques they will incorporate. I mean, as our teachers, as I mentioned before, we can definitely make suggestions. Hey, have you considered this technique? Let me show you how this works. Have you thought about this medium? But in the end, we let the students decide. And that is, again, a big benefit, in, especially in decision-making and problem-solving. And also in ownership, they're all clearly benefits. So for me, all this is why I fall on the process side of the bait. When I last, the last podcast I did, I think was the different situations require different solutions. So I understand there are other teachers are going to say, well, Sansette works for you. I'm still going to go with product focused and that's fine. You've got to teach how it works for you. But for me, <laughs> I see the benefits of this process outweighing the product based lesson. It just totally outweighs it. So that's product versus process. And, um, you know, we, we're going to take sides on that. Maybe maybe we're going to take sides. But um, I, I'm going to end with a story um, at a project flop, which I think will, will bring us all together and heal our differences. Um, you know, we talked about a student failing before, and it's OK, to, in my opinion, to fail a project because you learn when you fail. But I don't think any of us would agree. And some may agree with that. I mean, maybe some wouldn't. But I, I think that. Nobody would disagree that if the student, besides failing, if they believe they became the failure or they're the cause of the failure itself, that I think that none of us want to see a student to feel that way. And that did happen to me one time. Um, and I'm going to tell you a story about a teacher I, I work side by side with called Mrs. Meanie Pants. That's what we're going to call her. <laughs> um, you know, our, our school is overcrowded. I think that's nothing. This is at Apex High School, and I don't think it's anything new. I think that uh, that happens a lot in, in schools, and sometimes teachers get put on a cart or you get put in a mobile unit, which I worked in for many years. And um, and sometimes you you know you get put in a room you just not you just not expected to get put in, and um, that's what happened to me. And it only happened for one year, and then I moved out to a trailer, which I was fine with. But um, what happened was I got a room, and it was a science it was a science lab, and it was right next to another science lab. Um, it was separated between, a, there was a storage closet between the two rooms that connected the two science rooms. One bad thing about working in a science lab is they have those sinks that kind of curve over and have those pointy things on. And so when you turn on the water, it like blasts out. <laughs> so every time we'd like do some art in this room, like we'd wash our paintbrushes out, it would just splatter the paint onto the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> that's, it was just a bad idea all around. But um, Miss Meanie Pants worked in the connected science room on the other side of the storage closet there. And she was strict. She was one of those stern, never smiled teachers. She liked things to be neat and orderly and quiet. <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, I teach art. So, you know, uh, one afternoon, 
uh, I, I was talking to a team of art students and they were all working and constructing. We were doing this big uh, collaborative project. It was a big group project um, with like cardboard cutouts and we were going to put it out in the hall. It was kind of a fun project. And anyway, I was talking to the, to the kids and they were working and they were being, they were being noisy, but um, they, they were getting things done and just, it was loud. I agree. It was totally loud, but Miss Meanie Pants, she bursts into the room and she yells, who's making that tapping sound? And the class like went from total noise to total dead silence in like 2.0 seconds, uh, which was definitely the first for that group. <laughs> okay, Miss Meanie Pants might have had a had a point, but you know she glared around the room and, and the kids were all scared and I was scared and <laughs> she looked like she was gonna kill us. Um, and I was standing in front of Mike and he was he was this kid he was one of the students and I'd just been speaking with him um, and and he was the one he responds to her and apparently he was holding this PVC piping and I guess he was just bouncing it on the floor like <laughs> I do this kind of thing all the time nervous you know twitches or whatever I tap my foot I, I chew my nails I guess I would do the same thing but he was bouncing this piece of PVC piping on the group while he was talking to me I didn't even notice it and I was standing right in front of him um but you know to me it was classic art room white noise <laughs> but apparently it was very very upsetting to Miss Meaty Pants and he just says he says my bad <laughs> and he's like looking at the tubing like a like a puppy dog with his tail between his leg and, you know, and he went on to explain how, you know, he, he was doing it unconsciously. He was tapping the pipe and he apologized to Miss Meanie Pants and to the entire class. You know, they were all listening in, but that wasn't good enough for Miss Meanie Pants. It, like, it, instead of accepting this kid's apology, she like lit into him. She's still yelling. She's explaining how her class was trying to work. And, and she added something about it, you know, this infernal racket and having no respect for these kids today. And, and before anyone could say or do anything, she marched back into her room and slammed the door. <laughs> and Mike, you could just see it like he. He felt terrible and you can just tell by the look on his face you know he he had done everything right in my opinion you know okay besides the tapping maybe that wasn't right but you know he could have easily kept his mouth shut he didn't have to say anything but instead you know he accepted responsibility for his actions he stepped up to the plate you know he announced that it was his fault you know he said he'd been wrong and he was sorry and you know I think he should have like gotten a word of recognition. This is for honesty and integrity. These are high school kids who, who accepts responsibility for things like that. But instead, his reward was this tongue lashing and this humiliation in front of the class to get yelled at. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Miss Meanie Pants didn't have a case. Like, she definitely did. Uh, th these conditions were not ideal for probably for either of us um, and definitely not ideal for what she deemed necessary for instructing her class. Um, so we were in definitely opposite directions from that. Uh, so she had every right to come into the class and explain her situation and require us to pipe down. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but instead, this became a failure in the true sense of the word. And not a failure of a project or of the lesson or of the student, but of an opportunity to demonstrate how to correctly handle a situation. Mm, getting a little on my high horse here. All right. All right. All right. I'll step down. <laughs> uh, listen, if you want to learn more about the process-based lessons. Um, Melissa Purdy has a lot to say about it in our book, Making Artists, a good chunk of her. She actually says a lot about it in the open art room as well, but she's got even a bigger section in Making Artists, so you can you might want to pick up a copy of that, and you can definitely walk through a lot of that process uh, right with her <laughs> through the reading of the text. Um, you can also check out the free resources on our website, theartofsouthbee.com. It's just artofsouthbee.com, A-R-T, O-F-S-O-U-T-H-B dot com. Uh, lots of themes there. Lots of artistic behavior units you might want to check out. 
even have some information on our APR classes that you might find useful. I don't know. So check it out and now get out there and make artists. (laughs) 